Well, let's turn to Romans and the final chapter. The final chapter of Romans. We will be looking at the final verses of Romans today also. This is the 75th sermon that I've preached on the book of Romans, if you are interested in that sort of statistic. Last week, we really zeroed in on verses 17 through 19. But let's reread them, and then let's just finish out the epistle this morning and see what the Lord has in store for us. Romans 16, verse 17, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Of course, Tertius was Paul's scribe who recorded these words as Paul dictated them. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, To the only wise God be glory forever, forevermore, through Jesus Christ, amen. Verses 17 through 19 that we explored last week contain a very serious warning, a warning repeated often in the New Testament. Watch out for divisive, false teachers in the church. And also guard your heart and your mind from deception. None of us like to admit that we are prone to seduction by false teachers or easily duped by intelligent-sounding, smooth-talking people. But some of the most naive people I've known are people, men in particular, who view themselves as wise and discerning. The world is full of cunning, clever, misleading people who dupe even well-meaning Christians into believing all sorts of crazy ideas. In the six years that I've been at UBC, I have met visitors on more than one occasion who want to talk after the service. And within just a few minutes of conversing with them, it's obvious that they've been misled somewhere along the way. They often come in with some sort of pet theological issue, 
And I just think to myself, it would take a really long time to unravel all of that. To really get them to think biblically. Well, we have to recognize our own heart's capacity for deception. If you are not willing to recognize that you can be misled, chances are you have been misled along the way about something. This is why I really love elder plurality. I've got six men that I can trust to stop me if they think I'm going off center. Now look at verse 19. Paul says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Notice the priority there. Wise to what is good. And last week, I made a very special appeal to our younger people. When you are raised in a Christian environment, you will often become very wise to what is good. God gave you those parents, those teachers, those youth pastors, those pastors to really help you know what is good and to pursue it. But there comes a time when you begin to feel that tug of the flesh towards the evil world. And you discover that your parents are not perfect. And you seize on some imperfection. And the devil just begins to erode all of your confidence in the Christianity in which you were raised. And you are just tempted to throw aside the moral restraints in your life and take the plunge right into evil. I've seen this happen many, many times with graduates from Christian schools. It's like three, four years later, you're like, whoa, what happened? Paul says to you, it is better to be innocent as to what is evil. Just don't go down that road out of curiosity. Don't follow the lust of your flesh to a very evil place. Don't come to despise the puritanical home that you were raised in. And when the temptation is strong, and it will be strong, cling to verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Friends, that is God's answer for you. God will crush your tempter to the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you really believe that? We need to spend a little time with verse 20. So let's read it again very slowly. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The truth is, Christ has already trampled the head of Satan at his cross just as he promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Satan was judged at Golgotha. And friends, you've got to really believe that. That is what the New Testament teaches. Some Christians 
especially those who are duped by conspiracy theories, seem to think that Satan has freedom, absolute freedom, to rule the world however he chooses. And friends, that is not true. Jesus spoke of the truth of Satan's defeat in John 12. He was in the upper room. Hours before his cross, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And in John 16, 11, mere hours from his cross, Jesus says, The ruler of this world is judged. Paul says in Colossians 2, at the cross, Jesus, quote, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The Greek text speaks of Christ stripping away their armor and their weapons. Paul says they are undressed and rendered powerless by Christ. And in that same context, Paul tells us that we no longer have to be taken captive by philosophy and deceitful teaching. And Hebrews 2 and verse 14 tells us, through death, Jesus destroyed, quote, the one who had power over the death, that is, the devil. And consider this, even before his cross, Christ trampled Satan through 40 days of starvation in the wilderness. Satan tried for 40 days not just on day 40, but for 40 days to convince Christ to eat bread even while his strength ebbed away and his body began to consume itself. But Jesus endured the assault of the most diabolical tempter in all the world. And he emerged victorious where Adam, having never known hunger, fell in paradise. And Jesus, friends, went on to endure two more temptations. And Jesus crushed the head of Satan. And Jesus went on to his cross and he arose from his tomb to utterly destroy the powers of darkness. And I know at this point you have a question. So let's clarify. Isn't Satan still alive and active? Absolutely he is. But he lives now on borrowed time. He's been placed on a short leash. He can only go so far. One of my professors, an avid hunter, put it well. Satan is like a heart-shot deer. He has suffered a mortal wound, but he tears off through the woods in great wrath. He's still a roaring lion. He rages over his mortal wound. But in the name of Christ, we can indeed resist the devil and he will flee. He must. When God commands Satan to flee, he has no choice but to flee. Friends, God has graciously provided a way of escape through Christ. Look at the end of the verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All temptation and every trial that we endure can now and should be endured through the grace that the Lord Jesus Christ provides. And remember this, Jesus was declared to be the Christ with power at the resurrection. Look at the words, 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is that? Well, he was declared to be the Christ with power, Paul says, at the resurrection. Jesus Christ is the one who resurrected and who claimed all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. Now think of it. The identical spirit who came on Jesus at his baptism and then drove him into the wilderness of temptation, that identical spirit, according to Romans 8, now indwells you. Isn't that marvelous? The same spirit who sustained Jesus through 40 days of temptation dwells in your heart. Identical spirit. When we fail to endure temptation, it's only because we are resisting in our own strength. And our humanity, friends, has not improved since Adam. It's gotten no better. You are as weak today as Adam. But for the believer, all temptation is now to be endured through the second Adam and the spirit that he brings through Jesus Christ. And when you endure temptation in Jesus Christ, verse 20 then becomes your assurance. The God of peace will soon, very soon, crush Satan under your feet. Now friends, I think far too many, even well-meaning Christians, view Satan's defeat exclusively as some future event. They live in perpetual fear of their surroundings. They cannot handle an election when their candidate doesn't win. They're constantly in fear of the end of the world as we know it. Much prophetic literature in dispensational circles over the last century, and it's gotten better, thankfully, but much of that literature just bred enormous fear in Christians and fostered countless theories about how the Antichrist was soon coming to power at Satan's behest. I used to read a vast, a vast amount of this literature. I really did. I got rather intrigued by it. And I will say this, that my theology got skewed away from a Christological center. It really got skewed by that literature. That literature, in my estimation, has a fundamental misunderstanding of Easter. What really happened at Easter The reality is that Jesus already crushed Satan's head at his cross. And Paul commenced his great epistle to the Romans with an insistence that Jesus, quote, was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And again, Matthew's gospel concluded with Jesus claiming all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. So here's my question. Do you believe that Jesus was given all authority in heaven and earth at the resurrection? I mean, do you believe the words of Jesus, yes or no? If you believe the words of Jesus, here's a second question. 
Do you believe that Jesus relinquished that authority to Satan until his second coming? Did Jesus relinquish that authority until the second coming? Well, if you believe that Jesus still has all authority, don't be misled by apocalyptic theories. Focus on the devil and his antichrist and start believing in the power of the resurrected Christ to accomplish his mission in the world. That's what the future is all about. That's what prophecy is all about. It's about the Messiah's mission in the world. Don't be misled. I really, maybe this is a pet peeve with me, I don't know, but I really am alarmed by how many Christians just really seem to reverse the priority sequence of verse 19. Paul again says at the end of the verse, I want you to be wise as to what is good. That's your focus. Be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Paul does not call Christians to preoccupy themselves with evil in the world. If you think that is your mission, friends, you are naive. And if you don't like that word, just remember it's not my word, it's Paul's word at the end of verse 18. Now, of course, Paul does not deny the reality of evil in the world. If that's what you think I'm saying, that's not what I'm saying. Friends, evil is real. Evil has been reality ever since the fall. And there is indeed enormous evil in our world. No question about that. But for the Christian, our preoccupation, our priority, our emphasis, our joy, our delight must be in what is good. That's wise, Paul says. That's what your focus has to be. Some Christians think to think, seem to think that it's somehow their, their spiritual gift to really discern evil everywhere. And it really becomes an excuse to spend enormous amounts of time just obsessing over evil and failing to accomplish much of anything for Christ's kingdom. It's really quite sad. Supposedly, they have some sort of mission of informing others about what's really happening in the world, but they seem curiously uninformed about the advance of the gospel. They're curiously uninterested in making disciples or praying for global missions. And that's what's really important about what's happening in the world today. They devote themselves to election conspiracy theories or speculation about how the world is abruptly going to end. I don't know when it's going to end. But they give themselves over to this and they really have not even witnessed anyone in years. And I am beginning to think that about half our church family has an extended family member that is caught up in this kind of thinking. And I know that because you've told me this. I really don't sense it's a big problem here, by the way, and I'm thankful for that. But you come when you tell me what's going on, and it's like, really? Oh. To hear some people talk, it's almost a mark of discernment to be able to sort of read the signs of the times and know precisely what Satan is up to at any given moment to make predictions about how the world is going to end tomorrow. And the fact is, Christians have been doing this for approximately 2,000 years. I had a visitor right here in this room, 
informed me how COVID-19 was definitely, most certainly, absolutely a sign of the end of the world. And if you couldn't see it, you're really blind. Well, I mean, we've had these kinds of pandemics, in some cases much, much worse ones, for a long, long time. And I can show you how that every one of those pandemics was seen as a sign that the world was abruptly going to end. Friends, I don't know when the world is going to end. I do know that the Noahican promise is still in place, and I do know that God's gospel is going to advance to all the nations. I do know that Jesus is sitting on a throne, and I do know that I have a great commission that I'm supposed to follow for the rest of my days. And it really is alarming to me how many evangelicals of late have just embraced giddy conspiracies and have really just abandoned the Great Commission. And as a shepherd, I just feel like it's my duty to really protect the flock and to keep us on mission. And if this is a problem, well, then go back and listen to the sermon that I preached back on January 24th. It was right after the inauguration of our current president. I preached a sermon entitled, Who Rules the Nations? I'll not re-preach that at this point, but you really you have to answer that question correctly. Who rules the nations? If you don't answer that question correctly, all of your thinking about the present and the future is going to get warped. It's going to get twisted. And you will be easily duped by false teachers. Now, friends, again, let me be precise. Lest you think I'm naive, evil is real. And I'm disturbed by the evil in our country. No doubt about it. Satan is still alive. And he roars like a lion. Conspiracies are also real. They are as real as sin. Psalm 2 speaks of the nations continually conspiring against God. It was a conspiracy of Jewish leaders who contrived to hang Jesus on a cross. Satan himself was intimately involved in that diabolical conspiracy. And he wound up crushed through that conspiracy. And that's because the greater reality is that Jesus reigns. Easter is God's definitive answer to every conspiracy against the throne of God. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Friends, that is God's decree in Psalm 2. And Paul tells us that was fulfilled at the resurrection. If you've got a problem with that, your problem is with Paul, not me. Psalm 2 was fulfilled at the resurrection. God established His Son as ruler of all nations, And he dashes in the pieces like a potter's vessel. Think about how many nations no longer even exist since the first century. God has already crushed many nations out of existence. Now, there are many Christians who seem to think that a group of very influential people who go by various names secretly rule the world at Satan's behest. And they are driving all of history forward to Satan's intended destination as if the future all belongs to Satan. And I just want to point out here, they often use Matthew 4 as a proof text. 
Satan speaking to Jesus said of the nations, all these will I give you if you fall down and worship me. He pretended to own all the nations, which is, of course, a little lie. It's not true. But I've heard it repeated often that Satan actually rules the nations, not Christ. Des Griffin in his book, The Fourth Reich of the Rich, says, Notice carefully that Satan claimed that he had been given control over the whole earth, that it was under his authority, and that Jesus didn't deny that fact for a second. He knew it was true. In Griffin's chapter title is an interrogative, Who Rules the World? And Griffin's answer to that question is Satan. And Griffin denies that Jesus Christ is even now ruling the world. And friends, Griffin is what the Bible calls a false teacher. This is false teaching. He is the very embodiment of the person in verse 18 who deceives the heart of the naive. He has fallen for Satan's lie. Jesus arose claiming all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he does not relinquish that authority. And just to be clear, because sometimes people go wrong on this also. In fact, there's a heresy that goes all the way back to origin, one of the church fathers, concerning this. Jesus did not receive all authority over the nations from Satan. Des Griffin says, well, he kind of qualified to succeed Satan, but he's not going to do that right away. Jesus is not qualifying to succeed Satan, friends. The Old Testament is really clear. God rules the nations. Psalm 103, God has a throne in the heaven and he reigns over everything. Psalm 2, Yahweh then declares that his son will rule the nations, not Satan, And in Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days on His fiery throne gives to the nations of the earth to the Son of Man. It's God that gives to Jesus the right to reign. And in Matthew 26, Jesus, on trial, claims Daniel 7 is fulfilled from now on. So God gave Jesus authority over all nations from now on. And in Hebrews 1, we learn that Jesus has resurrected to a throne, quote, forever and ever, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. The atoms that compose your body right now, the electrons swirling around the nuclei, he's upholding those right now by his word, by his power. And in Revelation 5, the resurrected lamb takes the title deed of the earth from the right hand of God on his throne. Friends, Satan is already crushed. He's already crushed. So let's be very precise. Satan is still alive and active, but he is a roaring lion with a mortal wound, and he is on a short leash in the hand of Christ Almighty. So with confidence, we can read the words of verse 19. I want you to be wise as to what is good. Let that be your preoccupation. And innocent as to what is evil. Let your focus be on Christ and His work, not on Satan. Friends, if you're going to read one book on what's wrong with the world, and I read them also, let me suggest you read five, maybe ten, on what God is doing for His own namesake in the world. 
read missions biographies, read about the advance of the gospel in various corners of the world, really encourage yourself with what God is doing, make sure you have the right balance, don't be naive about evil, but really get your focus on what God is doing. And no matter how evil the world is, no matter how intense the opposition, and remember, the people who received this epistle would soon be persecuted in the Neronian persecution. And through that persecution, God exploded the church in the Roman Empire. Remember this, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Those words were intended to reassure believers in the first century and the second century and the third century and every century in the 21st century. If the Lord comes back 500 years from now, these words are for us. Satan is already defeated. And no matter how great the temptation, just hang on, endure a little longer. And here's the promise. The grace, I'm sorry, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If ever there was a man who experienced opposition and trouble, satanic opposition, it was Martin Luther. You can go to the Vortberg Castle today where he took his inkwell and hurled it against the wall and said to Satan, flee, leave me alone, as he was trying to translate the Bible. And he tried to capture the essence of what I'm preaching this morning in his triumphant hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And listen to these words. For still, our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. But don't stop there. He continues, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. It was made certain at Golgotha. And then he says this, one little word shall fell him. And friends, what is that one little word? Luther actually doesn't give us the word because we're supposed to know what it is. What is that one little word that fells Satan? Here's the word, Christ. That word, above all earthly powers, well, who is that? But Christ on his throne. No thanks to them abideth. He's on his throne, not because humans have put him there. He's there because God decreed it. The Spirit, get this, the Spirit, the Spirit that indwelled Christ, the Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sighteth. Friends, that is verse 20. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, I hope that really, really encourages you. And if we're thinking Christologically now about the world, then the doxology of verses 25 through 27 will really resonate with us. 
Verses 25 through 27 actually contain Paul's second doxology for God's marvelous work of redemption. Let's turn back for just a moment to Romans 11, and let's recover the first one. Romans 11. In Romans 1 through 11... Paul explains the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first eight chapters in particular focus on God's justification, sanctification, glorification of the condemned sinner. Glorious good news. And then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul explains how Israel fits into God's great plan of salvation. In Romans 11, Paul uses the illustration of an olive tree to help us understand God's relationship to that nation of Israel that has rejected him. Like a gardener who prunes away useless branches, God cast aside the unproductive Jews. And Paul tells us God grafts in wild branches, Gentile branches, right into the olive tree. But then Paul adds a caution You Gentiles do not boast over the Jews. Rather believe that if God grafted the Gentiles in, He can most certainly graft the natural branches back in as well. And all of this really is quite compatible with the Old Testament, but admittedly it's a little bit mysterious. And Paul acknowledges that beginning with verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Wonderful words. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant. That's the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now observe the word mystery. A great Gentile harvest from all the nations is going to come in. And then Israel will turn and will finally embrace her Messiah. It's says really, truly a glorious mystery that we didn't fully understand in the Old Testament. And when you contemplate this glorious gospel that God has been pressing into the world through all the Old Testament and now right into the New Testament, how are you supposed to respond to that? How do you respond to the truth that God redeems you? That God redeems the Jew who rejects Him? That God can in fact graft in both Jews and Gentiles onto the same olive trunk? How do you respond to that? And the answer is doxology. What can you do but sing? Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. We can't fully understand them. That's what inscrutable inscrutable means. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This doxology is a statement of awe. 
when we survey the whole course of redemptive history through all the Old Covenant, through all the New Covenant, all the way through to the end of Revelation, when the whole new creation just opens before us resplendent and glorious, when the new Jerusalem prepared as a bride for her husband comes cresting over the horizon out there, what can you do but erupt in song? But our song can never search out the end of God's treasures. Paul says we can never explore the limits of God's wisdom. And in verse 34, don't anyone think that you can improve upon God's designs? Don't assume for a minute that you could give counsel to God or improve upon His plan of salvation. God takes counsel from no one. With that doxology in mind, let's go back now to Romans 16. Romans 16. And here we come to the end. And we are passing now right over Paul's application section. How does the gospel transform the way that we think about our bodies? Well, Romans 12 gives the answer. How does the gospel help us understand about how to live in the world in conformity to the world? How about obedience to human government? How about living together in Christian community in the church, even during a pandemic? How do we live together as brothers and sisters with different convictions? Romans 14. We just passed over all of that. The application of the gospel, Romans 12 through Romans 16. And now Paul concludes his epistle with a second doxology. And let's read it. But let's also notice a peculiar difference. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, notice those words, the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, did you pick up on the difference? I, I paused on it, so maybe you would. The first doxology emphasized the inscrutability and the inexhaustibility of God's wisdom. It's like we can't even understand all of that. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways, Paul said. But here, Paul emphasizes the revelation of divine mysteries. Paul emphasizes here the disclosure of God's plan through the prophetic writings of the New Testament. And when he refers to the prophetic writings in verse 26, he doesn't mean really future prophecy. He's talking about all the writings of the New Testament authors, everything they wrote. Now, friends, there is no contradiction between these two doxologies. One emphasizes the inscrutability of God, and the other emphasizes the revelation of God. And the fact is, both are true. Christianity has always insisted 
that we can know God truly, though we never know God exhaustively. Aside from revelation, God would in fact be unknowable. God would be hidden. God would be inscrutable, entirely mysterious, hid from our eyes, aside from revelation, both general and special. But God does not wish to remain unknown. God has been disclosing His mysterious ways to mankind through the centuries. And the fullest disclosure of Himself to mankind came through the Incarnation. And that's what verse 25 is all about, the preaching of Jesus Christ. That the infinite Almighty God who fills all time and space would humanize Himself, literally humanize Himself, And the person of Jesus Christ is indeed a mystery too large to be understood and simple enough for a child to comprehend. The mystery of the incarnation at the heart of human history is the mystery that makes sense of everything. But don't ever let the simplicity of the gospel story undermine its supreme majesty and mystery. If it's too simple, it's only because we have an impoverished view of God. Exploring God's wisdom is a finite voyage into an infinite sea. Theology enlarges the circumference of your knowledge and expands the boundaries of your ignorance. Paul says in Ephesians that even the bright angels of heaven and all their wisdom and all their intelligence, they've been looking on God for thousands of years. They too are astounded by the wisdom of God displayed in the way of salvation. And that's precisely why John Wesley penned these words, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore His strange design?' In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. You can't reach the bottom. It was Charles Bridges who wrote, The church, that's us, is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence of the divine character. The church is the grand scene in which the perfections of Yahweh are displayed to the universe, the angels out there. The revelations made to the church, the successive grand events in her history, and above all, the manifestation of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, furnish even to the heavenly intelligences fresh subjects of adorning contemplation. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel. Divine, inscrutable mystery revealed in childlike simplicity. And if you want to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil, then friends, just let verse 26 be your focus. Don't focus on the conspiracy theorists that are always wrong and never in doubt. How is God pressing His gospel to all the nations? That's your focus. That's Paul's emphasis in verse 26. The nations will know the gospel. Remember how Jesus wisely provoked his disciples back in Matthew 24 with his prediction that the entire temple structure would be dismantled. Every last stone would come tumbling down. 
And the disciples assumed, oh, if that happens, Matthew 24, that's got to be the end of the world. So they want to know, when will all this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And the end of the world. If the temple is destroyed, well, that's it. It's all over. And Jesus proceeded to identify a number of signs of the times which don't, in fact, point to the end of the world. But it'll be going on throughout all of human history. And he says, don't be alarmed by these things. Don't be deceived by these things. And then Jesus put those disciples' emphasis in the right place. He said this, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus says, Get your focus on my gospel to all the nations. And that's precisely, friends, where Paul's focus is here. As he concludes this glorious epistle, which is the greatest work in all of human history that actually explains the gospel. The gospel in verse 26 is for all nations. And notice this in verse 26, God determined it according to the command of the eternal God. to bring about the obedience of faith. God commanded the gospel to go forward, and it will. So friends, as we conclude this wonderful book, let me just encourage you to invest invest your time right there in God's command. The command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. All the nations are to become obedient to the faith. Do you want to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil? Well, then just recognize that Satan has been crushed and the future of the nations belongs to God and the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the globe like waters cover the ocean and every tribe and tongue and nation will hear the glorious words of the gospel. And verse 27, to the only wise God, Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.